Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, free to listeners and with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy our podcast, all we ask is that wherever you listen, kindly follow or subscribe and leave a review. Please note that Season 2 contains some limited descriptions of physical violence, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and from the True Suspense Files, this is The Chloroform Capers. Here is Episode 3, A Question of Justice. In Episode 1, we left off with Chelsea Steiniger safe, but her abductor still at large. Police were eager to track him down, but they did not have a great deal to go on. Chelsea had described the white van, but she had not managed to note a plate number. She also described her abductor, a white man, large in height and bulk. Without much of a lead, police started their search at the abandoned house that Chelsea had been able to identify. It was treated as a crime scene, but there was nothing they could immediately identify that would necessarily help them find the culprit. Detectives continued by going to the location where Chelsea's ordeal had started, the Lucky 7 convenience store on Market Street, where they caught a break. They spoke to two employees, neither of whom could recall seeing a young woman getting picked up by a van, the detectives described the van and explained they were looking for a big white guy who drove it. The employees immediately thought of a regular customer who fit the description and who happened to drive a white van. They both remarked, however, that he seemed a most unlikely abductor, but they supplied detectives with his name, Mark Weiner. Police located a record for Mark Weiner in the nearby small town of Barbersville at the outer boundary of Albemarle County, and they confirmed that a white van was registered in his name. He appeared to have no prior criminal record. Detectives found him with no trouble and questioned him at length. Mark Weiner was a hulk of a man. Standing over six feet, he weighed nearly 300 pounds. Police learned that Weiner, originally from the Maryland suburbs of D.C., had been living near Charlottesville for some time. He was the manager of a food line grocery store in town. Under questioning, Weiner readily admitted he had picked up Chelsea late on the previous night but he insisted he simply drove her to her mother's house in Pantops. At 52 years of age, married with a nine-year-old son, 
Mark Weiner seemed, like the lucky seven employees suggested, a most unlikely perpetrator. Convinced they had their man, police arrested him and charged Weiner with abduction with intent to defile. After Chelsea identified him as her abductor, he was whisked off to the Albemarle County Jail and held without bond. As Chelsea would tell reporters at a later date, quote, I'm glad he's off the streets. He can't do this to anyone else. A trial was scheduled for May 21st of 2013, and meanwhile, Weiner was to remain behind bars. The prosecutor for the case would be Denise Lunsford, the Commonwealth's attorney for Albemarle County. In most states, the head prosecutor for a county or city is known as the state's attorney. Virginia is one of four states that calls itself a commonwealth, though there is no special legal significance to this. Originally from Tennessee, Lunsford moved to Charlottesville after graduating in 1990 from Washington and Lee University's Law School in Lexington, Virginia. The Commonwealth's attorney is an elected position. Denise Lunsford ran as a Democrat in 2007 against the Republican incumbent and defeated him. She was re-elected four years later. The fact that Lunsford herself would prosecute Weiner, rather than one of the attorneys on her staff, reflected the importance of the case. Mark Weiner was represented by Ford Childress, a lawyer for 30 years and himself a former Albemarle County prosecutor. As the trial date drew closer, Lunsford reached out to Childress to discuss, quote, resolving the matter. I think it's always a mistake on both sides, she wrote in an email dated May 13th, not to at least discuss a possible resolution. With the trial just over one week away, the Commonwealth's attorney was offering a plea bargain. Instead of the charge of abduction with intent to defile, which she pointed out involved a midpoint guideline of 72 months, Lunsford told Weiner's attorney that the Commonwealth was prepared to amend the charge to just abduction, for which the guideline sentence was up to six months incarceration. The emailed offer closed with the following words from Lunsford. This offer expires at noon on Friday, May 17, 2013. In other words, defense counsel had four days in which to respond. Childress ended up rejecting the offer on behalf of his client, and no plea bargain was reached. On Tuesday, May 21, 2013, the trial commenced before a jury of five men and seven women. 
It was scheduled for one day, but that proved to be off the mark. The trial would end up lasting four days. Though bitterly contested, the evidence was not very difficult for the jury to follow. Only after the trial would things begin to get very complicated. Judge Cheryl Higgins was presiding over the case. In Virginia, judges are elected by the General Assembly. Judge Higgins had been elected as a Republican. Starting with opening arguments, Denise Lunsford portrayed Mark Weiner as a predator who would troll around in his white van late at night. By stalking Chelsea Steiniger, Weiner managed to learn her route to her mother's house on Pantops from her boyfriend's Grady Avenue apartment. Lunsford made much of what she described as the sadistic text messages Weiner had sent from Chelsea's phone after subduing her with a chemical-soaked rag. The prosecution's evidence mostly consisted of the testimony of Chelsea Steiniger. Chelsea spent considerable time on the stand giving emotional testimony about her ordeal. In direct questioning by Ms. Lunsford, she recounted the events of that December night, much as laid out in Episode 1, An Abduction. Chelsea was questioned about accepting a ride from a stranger. At first I said, no, I'll be fine, I'm just walking home, she testified. But Chelsea explained that the man asked again, and she reluctantly accepted, being just after midnight and feeling very cold and miles away from her mom's place. A timeline was set forth through her testimony. She estimated the point at which she was rendered unconscious by a liquid chemical, presumed by most to have been chloroform, was 12.22 a.m., based on the times of the texts from her and then from Mark Weiner to her boyfriend, Michael Mills. On cross-examination, Childress pressed her on why she did not call law enforcement at any point in the evening. But Chelsea explained her hesitation based on the discomfort with police that we discussed in episode one. And by the time she might have made the call, she testified, her cell phone battery had gone dead. She readily admitted she should have called 911 at the first opportunity and would do so had she to do it all over again. Defense attorney Ford Childress, for his part, described Mark Weiner as a family man who was active in his synagogue, involved in his nine-year-old son's Boy Scout troop, and who was taking night classes at Piedmont Virginia Community College in Charlottesville for personal growth. Weiner, the accused, actually took the stand in his own defense, which tends to be the exception in serious criminal cases. 
he testified that he saw Steiniger after a class he took at the community college. Weiner told the jury he offered her a lift out of concern for a young woman who, quote, looked like she needed a ride, unquote, walking alone on a cold, windy night. According to Weiner, he called out to Chelsea from the parking lot of the Lucky 7 convenience store, and after she got in, he drove her straight to her mother's Pantops condo. Weiner also testified that he and Chelsea even talked about her starting a job search. He claimed he mentioned that he managed a food lion and offered to take her number if a job opened up there. Weiner testified that she volunteered her number without hesitation, and he wrote it down on a matchbook. The prosecutor, however, asked him on cross-examination, where is the matchbook now? Weiner had no good answer. He mumbled that he thought he had it. Lunsford vigorously questioned him about his claim of writing Chelsea's number on the matchbook. Despite repeated opportunities, Weiner was unable to explain where it was and why he did not have it now. Through the wording and tone of her questions, the prosecutor was clearly implying that was because it never happened, as Weiner described. Through questioning about his route on the night in question, the Commonwealth's attorney also got Weiner to admit that he did not go straight home when his night class was finished at the community college. So he was also questioned at length about what he was doing, driving around at that time of night, not headed to anywhere in particular according to his own testimony. He repeatedly responded to the prosecutor that he was smoking cigarettes for a while because his wife always objected to it when observing it. Weiner was cross-examined about receipts from stops he testified that he made that evening. He could not explain where they were. Apparently, like the matchbook, no such receipts were ever recovered from his van. And when the Commonwealth's attorney questioned him in detail about exactly where he picked Chelsea up and the route that he took on the night in question, Mark's answers did not exactly seem consistent. At one point, attorney Childress called the forensic technical investigator on the case, Charlottesville detective Blaine Cosgrove, a veteran of over 25 years on the force, to the stand as a defense witness. After the detective acknowledged that he had examined cell phone tower records from AT&T, Weiner's lawyer then attempted to question him about the records with respect to the night in question. But the prosecutor objected. Her argument was that Childress had not, quote, laid the proper foundation, unquote, to admit the records into evidence. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the legal weeds, but I do want to explain to non-lawyers what this means. An objection to foundation 
means that the lawyer has asked the witness to provide certain information before establishing key elements, which in this case meant demonstrating the authenticity of the cell tower records. Typically, there are two ways to demonstrate that documents are authentic. One is by having the witness testify as to the chain of custody through which the evidence passed from the time it was discovered or created up until the trial. A second option is to have an expert witness examine the document to determine if it has all the properties that it should have if authentic. So here, the prosecutor's argument came down to pointing out that it was AT&T that created the records, not the detective. So he would be unable to testify as to the authenticity of the records. At best, he could only have personal knowledge of how he himself obtained him, but nothing in the chain of events prior to his receipt of the records. At the same time, Lunsford insisted that the detective was not properly qualified as an expert witness on cell tower records and therefore could not authenticate the documents on that basis either. Weiner's attorney asked to go off the record at this point, and the judge had Childress and Lunsford meet her in chambers. Childress asked for a continuance so that he could call the right witnesses for laying the proper foundation, but the judge denied his request. After argument back and forth, Judge Higgins ruled against allowing the admission of the cell phone records or the officer's testimony. When the detective stepped down from the witness stand, no evidence had been adduced for the jury. It was impossible for anyone to tell if the records would have been relevant, much less helpful, to one side or the other. In most serious criminal cases, both sides tend to rely heavily, at least in part, on some forms of physical or forensic evidence. But almost no such evidence was presented by either side to demonstrate that Weiner was or was not connected to the abandoned home where Steiniger said she had awakened, or to Steiniger's mobile phone from which the defendant was alleged to have texted Chelsea's boyfriend. The closest thing to physical evidence was the exchange of texts between Chelsea's phone and the phone of Michael Mills. In closing arguments, the lawyer for the accused emphasized his client's lack of any criminal record his status as a dedicated family and community man, married for over 20 years with a nine-year-old boy, and his unequivocal denial of having done anything to Chelsea except give her a ride to her mom's house on a cold night. Ford Childress also underscored that the alleged victim's mobile phone was too small for Weiner with his massive size 16 fingers to have used for texting the taunting messages to Chelsea's boyfriend. 
Commonwealth's attorney Lunsford, in her closing, painstakingly went through the testimony and the evidence. She started by reminding the jury of the extensive records of the text exchanges and Chelsea's detailed emotional testimony consistent with the text communications about all she suffered through on the night in question. On the other hand, Lunsford tore apart Weiner's testimony as not credible, inconsistent, and lacking any proof that he would be expected to have if he were being truthful, such as the matchbook or the receipts from where he claimed to have been that night. She made much of the fact that Weiner had no explanation for why he was driving around aimlessly at the time, and pointed out that the explanation, that he was just smoking cigarettes rather than heading straight home to his wife and son, was very hard to take seriously. In regard to the defense argument that Weiner's hands were too big to have texted from Chelsea's phone, the prosecutor all but mocked the other side as she suggested it's kind of an O.J. Simpson, if the phone doesn't fit, you must acquit sort of thing. And Lunsford then told the jury, this is going to come down to, really, what reason does Chelsea have to make this up? On the afternoon of the fourth day of trial, May 24, 2013, the jury was sent to consider their verdict on the single charge of abduction with the intent to defile. They deliberated for about four hours. When they returned to the courtroom, the verdict was announced. We, the jury, find the defendant, Mark Weiner, guilty as charged. Chelsea seemed to tremble as she and her mother tightly embraced. Mark Weiner bowed his head low as his wife wept openly and his extended family went to comfort her. The jury was sent back to decide on what sentence to recommend, though the final decision would be left to the judge under Virginia law. It was only ten minutes before the jury returned for a second time with their recommendation of 20 years in prison for Weiner. Reflecting to the jury that they were originally told the trial would last just one day, Judge Cheryl Higgins told them, It was a long four days. Thank you for being available this additional time. She set a date in the summer ahead for her to determine the actual sentence. Meanwhile, Mark Weiner was sent straight back to jail. In the weeks following, after experiencing anger over the crime and relief when the verdict was announced, the public began to hear undercurrents of suspicion. After whispers and chatter in the legal and law enforcement communities expressing doubts about the outcome of the trial, Ford Childress began to make some dramatic claims. 
he very publicly termed the conviction of his client, Mark Weiner, a, quote, miscarriage of justice. The local news media covered an increasing chorus of dissatisfaction with the verdict. As with the Kurt Kroboth story, some of the very best coverage was provided by the Hook weekly newspaper, this time from award-winning reporter Lisa Province. The controversy centered on the failure to have police detectives with important information about what cell tower records revealed testify in the case. Now, you'll recall that Detective Cosgrove was prevented from giving evidence at trial based on objections from the Commonwealth's attorney. Mark Weiner's lawyer now informed the public that In addition to Cosgrove from the Charlottesville force, Albemarle County Detective Mark Bellew, a 10-year police veteran and graduate of the University of Virginia, also reviewed the records. Bellew was part of a regional fugitive task force that regularly used cell phone GPS data to triangulate a suspect's location. Childress claimed that both detectives had been called upon by Lunsford herself to give their conclusions, and both offered the same advice to her. There was a major hole in the Commonwealth's case. According to Childress, the texts from Chelsea's phone that were said to have been sent by Weiner from the abandoned house and later by Chelsea herself from that location in fact, originated from the area where Chelsea's mother lived on Pantops, miles away. Childress admonished Denise Lunsford for having kept out evidence from the very detectives she had consulted. As cited by Lisa Province in the Hook newspaper, Childress said, quote, Denise Lunsford got the conviction but the real duty of the Commonwealth's attorney office is to seek justice. The Hook reported that in a brief telephone interview, Chelsea Steiniger referred to the police analysis of cell phone tower records as bullshit. It was then that Chelsea said, What happened to me? I'm lucky to be here right now. I want him off the street so he can't do it to anyone else. But murmurs and rumors came more out in the open as many around Charlottesville began to question whether justice had indeed been served, even as members of the jury willing to speak off the record insisted that Chelsea was very credible and Mark Weiner was not. But new concerns were quietly expressed in an unlikely quarter, the medical community. Some physicians were starting to suggest that the matter of the chloroform raised doubts about Chelsea's story. Let's go back to my interview regarding chloroform from episode one with Dr. Paul Baker to get his thoughts when I ran it by him. We pick up with a question that I posed to Dr. Baker. You and I were chatting about this case I'm looking at where a woman alleged that she was abducted by a guy who was giving her a ride. 
And after a while, uh, he reached over and put a chloroform-soaked bandana, I should say, over her face. Um, she said she went unconscious after a few seconds. Does that, does that make sense? That makes absolutely no sense. Uh, chloroform doesn't work that way. It's a myth. Uh, you just don't take a whiff and suddenly fall unconscious. Um, it takes several minutes to begin to take effect. Uh, and back in the Civil War, when they were using this as an anesthetic, they would uh, place a, a chloroform-soaked sponge uh, over the patient's uh, mouth and have him breathe it for five to ten minutes before they could even proceed to the operation. Uh, in addition, uh, you have to remember the chloroform is quite volatile. And if you soaked a rag in chloroform and you didn't use it quickly, uh, you could easily use its effectiveness by the time it was pressed against the victim's nose or mouth. It sounds like the driver would have to be holding on to the bandana for quite a while in order to do this. But the quick knockout thing, I don't think that could remotely ever have happened like that. So if you wanted to render someone unconscious against their will, you'd want to bring the bottle of chloroform with you, soak the cloth, and immediately press it on the nose and mouth and then make sure to hold it there for five or ten minutes. Is that about right? Well, Arthur, I don't want to be advertising how to render victims unconscious, but I think you got the right idea. And remember... Doing that could easily do more than knock a person out. It could kill them or cause lifelong medical problems. If uh, chloroform is not an instant knockout chemical, is there some other chemical that might have been soaked into the bandana that could have done this? I mean, the assumption was that it was chloroform, but is it possible she was telling the truth that, that it was just a different chemical? No, I can't think of any inhaled chemical that would act that quickly to produce unconsciousness. Now, we do have chemicals that we use, drugs that we use in the ER and or in the operating room to give relatively quick unconsciousness, but they're all given via the intravenous route. Uh, using the inhaled route, it would take a minimum of several minutes. And by the way, that is assuming the person is going to cooperate and take deep breaths in and out. But if the person was resisting, there would be plenty of time to struggle, and that would mean the process would take even longer to knock somebody out. So, you can see Dr. Baker's misgivings about Chelsea's story. That leaves us to wonder about whether there might be an innocent explanation for all this. We'll see where these doubts about Chelsea and the chloroform led, and follow some new twists and turns in the story when we get to episode 5. Meanwhile, coming next, we'll return to the big house on the acreage in Albemarle County and catch up with the attacking vampire in episode 4, Drawing Blood. The Chloroform Capers is a production of True Suspense Podcasts, written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions. <laughs>